Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Eva Shang, a Harvard dropout, Peter Thiel fellow, entrepreneur who co-founded a software and data analytics program, and applied that to co-founding and now being CEO of Legalist, focused on litigation finance and asset management. In this episode, we discuss Eva's incredible beginner's mind. Eva founded Legalist at the age of 20 with her fellow Harvard classmate. And together, they led the company through Y Combinator's Accelerator Program, where they subsequently dropped out of college and pursued a business in litigation finance full-time. They now manage over $200 million in assets, and they're still growing. I couldn't help but ask Eva so many questions about asset management, in part because I've been in the business for about 20 years, and I found her to be so unique. Her emotional calm and maturity you can really pick up on. And just thinking about how can she build a better asset management firm, that was really inspiring to me. I don't know, call me a a business case study nerd, I don't care. (laughs) But I think you'll enjoy this conversation if you're anything like me. And I particularly loved her description of how Harvard wasn't the destination, but rather a tunnel. And she inspired me to think about, I'm using air quotes, the path, and really how to get off the traditional path and build your own destination. Please enjoy this conversation with the marvelous Eva Shang. Hi, Eva. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Big thanks to Eric for the introduction. We were catching up a while ago and talking about some investments and esoteric strategies. And then we had transitioned to talking about my podcast. And then he said, wait a minute, I have someone perfect for you. And so he shared your profile that you were a Harvard dropout because you had come up with data analytics that you thought was fantastic, and then use that within the legal world and now run this asset management firm focused on litigation finance. And so I was thrilled to connect. So big thank you to Eric. I'd love to, before talking about Legal List, I would love to rewind your highlight reel and even before your Harvard years, but talk more about where you grew up first. And so if you don't mind rewinding to your Philly days. So I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. The area that I'm from, it's on the Paley Thorndale Railroad line. So I always used to take the train into the city. And I actually did my first internship at a a law firm in the city of Philadelphia. And did you know you wanted to do something around law when you went to Harvard? I always thought that I wanted to be an attorney, mostly because my parents always said that I was good at arguing. (laughs) So then when you're at Harvard, I think it was junior year that you'd come up with this software and data analytics. How did that come about? The original idea behind Legalist was not really an idea at all. It was just a data source. In the Massachusetts state court system, they have this super janky website that they spent about $70 million building. It's called masscourts.org. So my co-founder 
is a computer scientist who specialized in data scraping and in finding unique sources of data. And the initial idea that he had was just, I want to crawl this website. This website is not very usable. Unlike, say, Pacer or other state courts, it doesn't even give you access to the underlying documents, and yet it costs $70 million to build. So he thought, okay, I'm going to scrape this. I'm going to do something with it. The problem with scraping a lot of data is that unless you have access to something like AWS or another server on the cloud, you have to use a local server. And so what he did was he was using the Harvard internet. And Harvard quickly realized that a vast amount of information was passing through his Wi-Fi connection. And they thought he was doing something illegal, like <laughs> mining Bitcoin or something. So they shut off his access to the Mass Courts website, at which point he bought several Mac minis, those tiny metal boxes. And then he was like, can I put them in your room? They don't need a monitor. They'll just kind of sit quietly in the corner and they will mine lots of data. So I lived in a different house. It was a slightly different internet connection. Okay, yeah, you can put these Mac minis in the corner and download vast amounts of, of court data from my internet connection. And then that's how I got into this whole legal data business. Fast forward, eventually we, we collect all the data and then we're like, what are we going to do with it? So we have an initial idea, which is what if we could mine this data to create analytics and what kind of analytics would be interesting? We could mine analytics to see that which attorneys have the best win rates. I mean, this had a couple of problems. The main problem being that the attorneys that had the best win rates were collections attorneys because they were going up against consumers and they won every case. And those are also the cases that went to trial. Okay, so, so that one was not so interesting. The next idea that we came up with was we could just measure things like case duration, like a judge's record, and then we could sell it back to attorneys as analytics to help their practice run better. And it was off of that idea, and we must have pursued that idea for you know a few months or so. It was off of that idea that we got into Y Combinator, which is a Silicon Valley startup accelerator program. But then once we were in Y Combinator and actually began trying to sell it to attorneys, we realized something else really crucial that I had missed in the process of designing this and also even farther back as I was thinking about whether I should be an attorney, which is that attorneys are not very incentivized to be efficient. In fact, they are incentivized to be as inefficient as possible. <laughs> and any tools you give them to make them more efficient go directly against their self-interest. <laughs> Kindly leave. Get out of here. Yeah. And so then there we were in Y Combinator. We have this data. And at this point, we don't just have the Massachusetts court data. We have data from a variety of state courts. We have some analytics that we've built on top of it. And we're realizing that, one, attorneys are not that interested in making themselves more efficient. And two, for that reason, pretty much all the legal tech companies that have arisen to serve a purpose along these lines have had disappointing exits. So at that point, you had even the biggest legal analytics companies like Lex Machina or Ravelaw that had sold for fairly small amounts compared to the amount of VC funding they had raised to the incumbent players like Lexus and Westlaw. It made us realize that the best tech does not necessarily lead to the best business outcome. And it was at this point that we heard about this field called litigation finance from the general counsel at Y Combinator. And he had been telling us about this field for ages. We were like, oh, okay, yeah, 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 that's your pet idea. That's great. <laughs> the picture he painted of litigation finance kind of went something like this. You have these 
attorneys who spin off of law firms, raise a bunch of money, and then invest it back in their law firms. And it's got a business model that is very attractive to limited partner investors for the following reasons. It's uncorrelated to the stock market. And there are very few products that are like that. The traditional diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, they're kind of all correlated to each other these days. So something truly uncorrelated is very hard to find. And this is one of those. Secondly, litigation finance as it's currently practiced is pretty high yield. Because you're taking individual case risk, a lot of the investments can yield multiples of what you put in. And a lot of litigation funders are seeing private equity-like returns. But then there are also some flip sides to litigation finance that mean that the model has not yet scaled to where it could be. And there's room for a good tech play. And the, the flip side to litigation finance, as it was practiced at that, at that time, was that most litigation funders had very concentrated portfolios. And when you have an asset like litigation finance, where a single case could go wrong in any number of ways, right? It could go wrong because the jury doesn't like your tie that day. It could go wrong because there was a judge who really liked you and then they died. It could go wrong because new evidence comes up that your side just didn't know about. And when you have a relatively concentrated portfolio, that binary risk is exacerbated. And so it led for fairly inconsistent returns to litigation funders. So some portfolios would do really well, some would do really poorly, and it prevented the industry as a whole from scaling. So we went back and we looked at our data and we said, well, is there something that we can do that mitigates this problem? And we came up with the idea that since we already had a bird's eye view of the entire litigation market, all the cases that were filed, all the cases that were ongoing, all the cases that were concluded, we could cherry pick the cases that we really liked that fit a given investment mandate and just invest in those. And that was the strategy that we pursued, raised our first fund of 10 million in 2017, second fund of 100 million in 2019. We started expanding into adjacent legal strategies based on the same data in 2020. And today we manage about 220 million of assets under management. So that is the, the brief summary of how I got here from the last six or seven years. <laughs> oh my God. So there's a lot to unpack in that. I'd like to rewind a little bit. So you were doing this with your friend Christian in Harvard. Yeah. At what point did you realize, hey, let's really focus on this because you guys ended up dropping out. But just to walk through that further in terms of now you're going down the world of portfolio management and asset management, looking at uncorrelated returns, and that's a whole separate beast. But let's rewind to junior year at Harvard when you said, okay, this is time. And so was it because of the Y Combinator Accelerator Program? Or what were your thoughts as you decided, no, let's not do this degree route? When we got into Y Combinator, even then, you know, I wasn't necessarily sure that I wanted to do this full time and, and not go to law school. When you left Harvard and you're looking at alternative ways to get these degrees, whether it's a law degree, how do you think about formal education now? When I was growing up, I kind of thought of college as a destination. My dad always jokes that Asian parents would rather have their kids go to an Ivy League and then sit in their basement for the rest of their lives than to not go to college at all. Because to them, going to college is a destination. And when I was growing up, that's how I thought of it too. I'm going to go there. And then I didn't really think about what would happen afterwards. It was just the place to go. It was the, the achievement. And 
I was someone who's really used to getting a lot of gold stars and that I wanted that gold star to be the feather in my hat. So once I got there, I realized that what I thought was a destination was actually a tunnel. And it was a tunnel at the end of which you had to make another choice. And the choices, again, this time were no longer so clear cut. The choices were going into investment banking or going into consulting or going into academia. And law school seemed like the the next destination that, that felt like a destination. But then as I started looking more into law school and as I took the LSAT and started actually exploring what the career of a lawyer was, I realized that law school was just another tunnel at the end of which the same choice again. And at that juncture, you could go and be a public defender. You could go and work as an associate at a big law firm. And it was the same unappealing set of options, none of which really spoke to me. And I realized that if I wanted to go to a place that was actually a destination, it would have to be one that I created myself. I remember when you're doing prep for Y Combinator, there are standard questions they ask you, right? They ask you, what's the total addressable market? They ask you, what's your path to revenue? And none of those have clear right answers. There's only one question that has a clear right answer, which is, are you intending to do this full time? And the answer to that is always, yes, I am intending to do this full time (laughs) because otherwise investors are not going to want to give you seed capital. Incidentally, that was the one question after all of my prep that I messed up during the interview. One of the, the YC partners asked it so nicely and so calmly that I was like, oh, I don't know. It depends on whether we raise money. And then after the the interview, my co-founder, Christian, was like, you messed up the one question that had a right answer. (laughs) And was there any question for you then going forward? You said, okay, this is it. Let's focus on that. Did you and Christian decide to do it together or did someone go first? The way that Y Combinator works is that at the very end, you have a demo day where you raise seed capital. And even up until that point, I don't think that I had necessarily thought of it as such. But after demo day, we were just so busy, wrapped up in the raising of the seed round that afterwards we looked at the money we had raised. And then we were like, oh, shit, like we have to make this money turn into more money. And that was a big moment for me because up until then, it wasn't real, right? It wasn't real what the task was. Uh, And then since then... Every single thing in my life has been making a given pool of money turn into more money. From there, what were the next steps once you dropped out of school? What were your par- what was your parents' reaction? Were they thinking, oh, this is just the trend of the day? This was kind of six or seven years ago when people were going to Silicon Valley and starting every startup they could. But what were your parents' reactions? My parents still ask me if I'm going to go back to school. And I'm like, mom, you go to school so you can get a job. And I already have a job. <laughs> Love that. So what were the early days of Legalist like? You had mentioned that it was a $10 million raise back in 2017. But what was the fund structure? What was the idea? Was it more focused on the analytics or more focused on the, the fund? But I'd love, if it's okay with you, I'd love for you to share with our listeners, taking a step back, just what the legal landscape is that you focus on and then drilling down from there. The way that litigation finance works is that you have a litigation where there's a smaller company going up against a larger company usually over a breach of some kind of contract. So let's say that your company gets bought by a larger company and you're, they're meant to pay you a $5 million earnout, and they don't pay it to you. So at this point, you have a lawsuit, you initiate the lawsuit, and you quickly find that your monthly attorney's fees are piling up and they're not what you expected when you filed the lawsuit. 
what we would do at that point in time is we would come in and we'd take over the burden of paying for the monthly attorney's fees. And then when the settlement or the judgment takes place, aka you get the $5 million, then we would get a priority multiple from that. That's kind of the basics of how litigation finance works. And what makes it so unusual is that it is non-recourse. So let's say that your case completely fails, you go in front of a jury and the jury hates your tie and you get awarded zero. Then in that case, we're out whatever amount of money we put in, usually around 500,000, which is our average investment size. And within the industry, we're fairly unusual in that we focus on these types of smaller mid-market David versus Goliath disputes, as opposed to some of the larger headline grabbing disputes where you can invest 10 million at a time. And the reason for that is, is pretty simple. When you're an asset manager that has a lot of capital, it's easier for you to put it in 10 large investments than it is for you to put it in a few hundred smaller investments. Our reason that we are able to put it into hundreds of smaller investments at scale and do this kind of volume is because we have a tech component on the front end that allows us to receive five to 10 times the number of funding applications that other funders get, that allows us to process those applications in an efficient way. And the outcome is that we're able to do a lot more smaller cases that have a lot of real impact for the plaintiffs who otherwise would not be able to pursue their claims. That's great. Talk more about that tech-enabled scraping. What does it look for and what are some of the features or variables that you guys input in it? There's two components to us making an investment. There's the origination part and then there's the underwriting. The underwriting is actually done by attorneys. So we have seven attorneys on staff, five on litigation and two on bankruptcy. And they take a deep dive into the case, make sure that the damages, the collectability all line up with our funding amount and just generally make an assessment of whether we're going to get our money back. But the origination component, that part is heavily tech-driven. And the reason it has to be tech-driven is because if we just waited around for attorneys who know me from my life as an attorney and emailed me with their cases, we would be waiting until, until the end of times. So what we do is we crawl the court dockets, we look for cases that match our investment criteria and are sufficiently far along, and then we reach out to them proactively. This is something that distinguishes us from other funders because we actually have a, a strong focus on these smaller types of investments that are farther along. We're not looking for cases that are pre-filing. We want them to be already filed and already have some information in the court dockets that we can look at. We get a lot of questions about frivolous lawsuits, and that's something that we're very sensitive to, but it's also not a wise financial decision for us. If we were to fund a frivolous lawsuit, we'd never get our money back. Not to mention the fact that if they've already put a lot of money into it without us being involved, you can bet that there's quite a few parties involved who don't believe that it's frivolous. How do you define in the data what a frivolous or non-frivolous lawsuit is as you guys are putting in for it to scrape certain amounts of keywords or key phrases, but how does that get screened out? The frivolous lawsuit part, I personally believe that if a lawsuit is, is filed without funding and someone has put money behind it, that it's probably not a frivolous lawsuit, at least in the eyes of a plaintiff. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good fit for funding. So in the course of litigation, you know, people have this idea that a case is filed and then it goes straight to trial. 
And in reality, what happens is that going to trial is a two, three year process where first you file your case and then the defendant has the opportunity to file something known as a motion to dismiss, where they are trying to get your case disposed of just based on the pleadings. And then after that, you have a stage called discovery where you're exchanging information and where a lot of facts are revealed, but then there are disputes within discovery about what should or shouldn't be turned over. And then after that, you have the next round, which is called the motion for summary judgment, where you're trying to get the other, uh, where the other side is trying to get your case thrown out based on what's been found in discovery. And then if there are genuine issues of fact, then it goes actually to, to trial. And so a lot of what we look for is based on the case type, the court, the party type, intermixed with these time series variables. So certain types of cases we might be interested in as soon as it's filed. Other types of cases are extremely risky until they survive motion to dismiss. And then still other types of cases, we wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole <laughs> until at least they have a judgment. So those are the types of decisions that we're making on the front end. And then once we've isolated those cases, then we have our, our wish list that we go after. It's amazing. How big is this and market? Like how big is the data set that you are, are looking initially for in terms of the origination phase? I hate to say it because it sounds so bad, but Americans are very litigious and there are 85 million civil cases filed every year. So it's a lot of cases. Million. <laughs> yeah. Is there a breakdown in terms of theme? There are a, a lot of smaller claims, small claims cases, consumer credit collections cases. So all, most of those have to be filtered out. So we don't even look at those because they obviously belong to case types that we're not interested in. Mortgage foreclosures and things, things like that. The ones that are remaining, we then actually go through and, and figure out whether they meet our criteria. Got it. And so can you walk through some of that criteria? What the underwriters actually do once they, they get the cases is they're looking for three main things. They're looking for liability, they're looking for damages, and they're looking for collectability. So liability refers to, is the case going to be successful? At the end of the day, are you in the right? And this, of course, is, is very important, and, and people understand this immediately. And the second two are a little bit more nuanced. So the second thing that we look for is called damages. Let's say you're successful. If you're successful for a million dollars and we've put in a million dollars, well, then you might be successful, but our investment was not successful. And this part is, is something that distinguishes a lawyer's way of looking at a case from a litigation funder's way of looking at a case. And then the third component is collectability. Collectability refers to if your case actually wins $10 million, does the defendant even have $10 million with which to pay you? Because if they don't, you've just want an empty judgment, a piece of paper. So that's kind of how we assess a case. It's not radical, but it is quite multidisciplinary because you have to understand the legal merits of the case, but you also have to be able to make an assessment of, say, the defendant's creditworthiness. And that's the reason why uh, on our team, we have actually a quite multidisciplinary team. We have attorneys, we have engineers, we have product people. And then, you know, you have all the standard finance back office staff as well. Amazing. I mean, there's so many questions I can ask you because then there's the technology questions, there's the legal questions, there's the asset management portfolio manager hat that you also wear. So maybe I'll start with the, the tech side. How much time do you spend on the tech side, given that that's in the origination phase in terms of tweaking the model, looking at the data, changing the algorithm, but focusing on the tech component, how much time do you spend on it? And how has that evolved in the past five or six years 
from starting Legalist to really almost on fund three now? We try to keep it a pretty dynamic process. So for instance, our attorneys might provide feedback to the tech team and say, you know, don't send me any more of this type of case. I'm sick of this type of case (laughs) and they're no longer good. Or they might say, oh, well, you know, you accidentally sent me one of these types, but if there are more of those, we should try to get more of those. So it is a constant feedback process. And our tech team is also involved in the other, we always say that we have an algorithm, but it's really multiple algorithms for each of our products. So we have this single case commercial litigation finance product where the average investment size is 500,000 and we're investing in a single case. We have our mass towards law firm lending product where you're looking for law firms that have portfolios of thousands of say hernia mesh claims. And then finally, we have our bankruptcy dip financing product where we're looking for debtors who have a few million in assets and are looking for between one and five million of debtor and possession financing. So each of those has its own investment criteria and its own set of things that the tech is looking for and its own timing restrictions. So on litigation, you usually don't want to reach out too early because there's not too much information yet. But on bankruptcy, if you reach out too late, the bankruptcy will be over. So the tech is is very dynamic and can be built out on the same data set to look for different types of investments. And as we expand, you know, our vision is to have a suite of products, each of which is potentially capacity constrained and not more than a few hundred million, but that stack on top of each other and have very specific and predictable return profiles and return streams. Uh, And all of that would be based around its own algorithm that rests on top of the, the underlying data. Fantastic. How many people are on your tech team? We have four people on the tech team. And then so moving to the the legal side, you had mentioned that you were thinking about being a lawyer. Your parents thought you would be in that field. How did you get up to speed so quickly in terms of not only applying the tech and changing and modifying the algorithms, but also just learning the difference between the various segments, whether it's bankruptcy or whatnot? But was it initially the YC council or how did you guys start thinking about more structurally understanding the framework and opportunity set within the legal world. I have to give a lot of credit to Curtis Smoller here, who's our head of litigation underwriting. He joined in 2017, right as we raised our first fund, and he ran his own practice for a lot of years. So he was familiar with a lot more case types than the average attorney. Actually, incidentally, I am about a year away from becoming an attorney. I'm doing the law office apprenticeship program which Kim Kardashian is also doing. Although, unfortunately, I don't get to see her in my my classes. <laughs> That's the um, California program, right? That Yeah, exactly. And how does that work for those that don't know? I, I'm familiar just because I, I heard about it, I, probably on the headline that Kim Kardashian was getting a law degree. But yes. it's the idea that you're getting a mentorship with a lawyer and then you take the bar. Is that how yes, that exactly. So you do have to study for a lot of hours a week. And then you take the bar exam. So you actually have to take the baby bar exam first which is the first year law students exam. And I was really hoping to see Kim Kardashian at my testing site, um, but unfortunately she wasn't there. And the pass rate on that is really artificially low because the accredited law schools do not actually have to take this exam. So only the people in the apprenticeship program or who are going to online schools have to. And so going back to Legalist, you then started in 2017, what are the differences between the first fund, the second fund? How much have you learned and changed either portfolio management, technology, team, mindset? 
In terms of the the investment strategy, uh, we try to change as little as possible. Even when we were going from fund one to fund two, there were a lot of people who said, you know, there's no way you're going to be able to maintain this investment size. Your fund two would have to have 200 investments in it. And that's exactly what we're on track to have. Our goal is to steer clear of that trap that so many asset managers fall into. There's this Harvard Business School study, which says that in a large organization, people get promoted until they're mediocre at their job, leading to everyone in a large company being fairly mediocre at their job, because that's the point at which they can't get promoted anymore. And you see this happen with asset managers all the time where their fund one is very impressive, their fund two is very impressive, and then they just grow AUM and grow AUM in a single strategy until they have style drift or until they apply more lax underwriting standards and until they are so mediocre that people are reluctant to give them more money for that particular strategy. And I have always felt really strongly that I did not drop out of school and start this company and put my prime career years into it just to be another mediocre portfolio manager living in New York City, sending my kids to private school, trapped in these golden handcuffs and not really excelling at what I do. So what I would really like is to build a new way of thinking about asset management um, where we can have our litigation finance strategy that is capacity constrained, I say it's capacity constrained because every strategy at the end of the day is capacity constrained. And there's not really a manager who can tell you otherwise. It's just a matter of where the capacity is. So we keep the capacity of each individual strategy at the point where it makes the maximum returns. And then we ourselves can keep turning back to the data to find new ones. And that's the reason why we have a couple of products out today, in addition to our flagship strategy and the direction that we hope to go in, it's so that we can, as a GP, grow AUM without sacrificing the returns of our LPs that have stuck with us from the beginning. Other than size and and capacity constraints or thinking about capacity constraints, how do you avoid being mediocre? What are, I'm sure there's an EVA list or criteria to avoid. I'd love to hear that list or the thoughts behind that. We also strive to have a pretty strong performance culture. I don't think that a performance culture necessarily has to be unfriendly or cutthroat. I think it's more just being objective about how everyone is performing. And what I found is that when you trim the leaves on a plant that are browning or gray, it actually helps the entire plant to to thrive better. And in an organization, you see it the same way. When people know what metrics they have to hit and know how they're performing, it makes the entire organization more efficient and happier because people like to work with other people who are working as hard as them. How do you look at metrics for softer areas that are not easily quantifiable and looking for ways to improve? Like overall getting that culture right, but it's not just metrics driven. People do a a semi-annual performance review where they rate themselves and their direct reports. And one of the things on there is How often have you helped someone else accomplish their business goals? And we think that that is super important because on a team like ours, where you have a few engineers, a few attorneys, there is a lot of collaboration back and forth. And we also have a totally remote team. So it's even better when people go above and beyond to communicate. I'd love to then focus now on the portfolio management side. And this is where I use the analogy within the asset management space 
with restaurants where people know the statistic of generally nine out of 10 restaurants fail. And I always say it's not from the bad cooking necessarily, because generally a restaurant opens because someone likes the style of cooking that the chef has. And the hard part is the actual administration and operational effort and lift of running the restaurant. And so within portfolio management and asset management broadly, there's good investors. They're all very smart. And the hard part is running the business, whether it's getting the culture, getting the size of the fund right, getting the size of the firm, having the ethos of like you do of never being mediocre. When you put on your business hat and saying, okay, how do I make Legalist the best firm out there as an asset manager? What are some components you think about? And then my second question will be more portfolio construction related, but first at a high level business level, what are some of the key things you focus on to build a really good asset management firm outside of just the overall mindset of not being mediocre? Well, what I've generally found with asset management firms coming from a non-finance background is that they tend to be staffed by all the same type of people. So people are promoted from analyst to associate to I think the next level is VP and then the next level is managing director. And they generally all come from what some of my friends who are in more traditional asset management call the path. And (laughs) the path goes undergrad at an Ivy League, then two years in investment banking, and then two years in private equity, and then two years of business school, and then two years ideally at a hedge fund, but you could go back to your private equity firm afterwards. My friend who told me this is very self-aware about it. I'm like, well, what are you going to do next? And he's like, I got to stay on the path. And the problem when you have a lot of people who are on the path and they all come from the path is that (laughs) they all think the same way and they're all going to have the same strengths and flaws. And it creates for a pretty homogenous culture. Whereas what we try to do is we try to think about the building and operations of an asset management firm from the ground up. So we have hired people who have worked at finance firms in the past, but we've hired them for a very specific skill set, right? So we've said, you know how to do this thing, which you have learned from the path. It's not just generally you're coming from the path. And in most other areas, we try to hire for people who have specialized expertise whether it's in sales, whether it's in engineering, whether it is in litigation. And when you put those together, you create an effect where people are much less generalizable to other functions on the team, but much more specialized to what they do. And then putting on your CIO hat and looking at all the deals, then it opens the door to risk management sizing, not only this litigation selection, but also the sizing of it. So how do you think about portfolio construction of what deals actually go in? You had mentioned criteria, but once they go in thinking about sizing, is it a $250,000 check? Is it a $500,000 check? All of that is what I think is the secret sauce and the alpha generation in that. So how do you think about portfolio construction and sizing? That's a great question. Like I mentioned before, if you have a case that's successful, but you put too much money into it, then it's no longer successful. So we try to be very conservative. There are certain industry benchmarks that we use, like the 10 to 1 damages to investment ratio. So we we try to stick by that. But I think more than that, it's just instilling in everyone, because you can, you can always exaggerate the, the value in order to justify the investment size. It is tracking metrics 
not just around the amount of capital deployed and returns and returns are, are great to track, but they come a little bit later, but also about attracting metrics that take place right that moment. So one thing that we track very, very closely is our mean and median investment size. And this encourages our underwriters as they're sussing out an investment to not just focus on how much money they're putting up for IC each week, but also how many cases and what the average investment size of their cases are. You had mentioned you had fund one in 2017, you had fund two in 2019. Are you done investing with that? And when is fund three going to launch if it hasn't already? So we are about 70% deployed on fund two. So we'll probably launch fund three towards the end of this year. I listened to this one interview you did where you mentioned this milling analogy or Miller analogy that I loved from a Margaret Atwood book. Can you expand on that? Because I would love for our listeners to hear it. Yeah, of course. You didn't bring this up, but a lot of people have this preconception of litigation finance as being somehow unsavory or you are funding folks that aren't so great or just the idea of being involved in litigation and lawsuits and lawyers is is very suspect. And I read this really wonderful book by Margaret Atwood where she described the transition for how lawyers came to be perceived this way and the original lawyer, so to speak, which was the the grain miller. And in fairy tales, you can see the hints of this because the grain miller is always the person who is a little bit tricky. So he might be the one that gets greedy and requests a mill that can mill gold or can mill flax or, or any number of valuable things. And the reason that millers were always portrayed as thus, it was because traditionally people had to take their grain to the miller who would always skim some off the top. And people perceived him as the beacon of industrialization, who was exploitative of the naive and just generally making profits off of not doing much work. Then gradually as time went on, the miller came to be seen less as the hallmark of industrialization and more as the person carrying the banner of the old and the naive. In Don Quixote, he actually raises his sword as at the windmills. And you can see that as the sort of the beginning of the change. So today, as the power has shifted from those who process the material goods that govern our world to the contracts that pertain to them, you see the lawyer take over that banner of the person who is cynically exploiting the naive townsfolk who just don't know what their contracts say. So I find this super interesting. And, you know, just like the miller, the lawyer is someone who is absolutely necessary for the townsfolk. The lawyer is someone who governs the contracts, but doesn't actually necessarily do anything to influence the production of the goods that are referenced in the contract. So I can see why people perceive law and litigation and lawyers that way. But access to the legal system, just as access to the miller was perceived back in the day, is still really, really necessary for plaintiffs as well as for the companies that have relevant litigation. How much of your mindset and mindshare go into making Legalist, and whether it's on the tech side or in the portfolio side, more ethically aligned? So ESG has been very popular lately, and there's been a big phenomenon that people call greenwashing. And 
what I don't want to do is I don't want to compromise the returns of our investors by falsely aligning ourselves with this greenwashing principle. But also, I think that diversity, inclusion, and equity is very innate to what we do, not just because of the asset class that we're in, where we're leveling the playing field, but also in how we run our business. So a lot of people who do operational due diligence have commented that we have an extraordinarily diverse team. So 60% of our underwriting team is either female or minority. And when people ask us how we did that, you know, I wish I could say we had a special formula, but the honest truth of it is just we're, we try not to be biased. And I think that just trying not to be biased really goes a long way and creates a lot of opportunities for people. I would love to ask you so many more questions about Legalist, the investment framework, and I will pause there because I, I will save our listeners two hours of my curious questions. And maybe I'll pivot now to the questions I ask all my guests, starting with who or what inspires you? I feel that you are so interested in a lot of different fields, and I'm curious what your inspiration is, whether it's in a certain industry or a certain profile. So one of our advisors once told me, I, I had asked them quite a broad question, right? I was like, what is the point of all the striving that we do? <laughs> <laughs> and he said something along these lines, and it has really stuck by me when things are hard. And he said something along the lines of, if you're going to play football, you have to keep score. So we're all playing football because we're engaged in this game called capitalism. And the score is how much money you make. And if you're going to play football, you have to keep score. Otherwise, you're not playing football. You're just tossing a ball around. But at the same time, you're not here because you love to watch the lit up numbers on the scoreboard go up, right? You could just go around the back and rig it. Really what you're here for is because you love to play football. You love to work hard and the hard work is the point. And whether or not things work out and I become extremely successful, I really relish every day that I get to do the things that I love, which are to solve hard operational problems and to make the pool of money that my investors have entrusted me with turn into a bigger pool of money because I love to play football. Metaphorically, of course, I actually in real life hate sports. <laughs> You've done so much and you're, you haven't even touched 30 yet. You dropped out of Harvard. You're Teal Fellow. You were, are a YC accelerator entrepreneur. In the view, built an asset management firm in very short order and managed over 200 million in assets, which I know is hard to get from a, an assets perspective. What are you most proud of? When I was 17, my sister and I started a petition for American Girl to release a girl of the year that had a disability. And she was only 10 at the time. And I don't think she really understood exactly what a petition was. But I sat her on this piano bench in front of the Christmas tree. And I wrote up a script for her to say into the camera. And I held it up on my laptop while I held the camera in my other hand. And that petition ended up going viral. So my sister has a disability and uses a wheelchair. So she really wanted to see a doll that had a story about being in a wheelchair. And the petition got about 150,000 signatures and it got her a ton of media coverage. And she ended up getting to speak at the UN a year later. So I'm really proud of that. Fantastic. When you think about, you had mentioned scoreboard, what's your scoreboard look like? I really want the people who have been there with us from the very beginning to be really proud of us. 
that's what I want. I ask all my guests to discuss. Initially, the question was to talk about their failures and their struggles. But now the question has evolved, just given that there's so much struggle and adversity embedded in a lot of people's growth. And so using the other word of the show, talking about growth and asking all of our guests, one of the biggest growth moments that they can share with us. So I think that growth usually comes from failure, as the title of your podcast (laughs) alludes to. One of the hardest times in the company's life was definitely right after we raised the first fund and waited for deployment to come back. So the big problem with a $10 million fund is that you can deploy it pretty quickly, but litigation finance cases take on average two years to resolve. So while we were kind of just waiting for the cases to come back, it felt like everything was in limbo. And in the meantime, you know, all of my friends in my cohort who had not done asset management businesses were able to see their numbers shoot up on a monthly basis. So the biggest thing that I had to learn was patience and just waiting for the fruits of your labor to actually show themselves. What's next for Eva Shang? We hope to be a billion dollar asset manager in the next few years. In the long term, I like this, the real idea that we have is I really want to create a new kind of asset management firm that's centered around a research team. So you have the research team in the middle that runs something that we can call like an experiment fund. And they're continuously going back to our current data or like new sources of data and coming up with like tiny capacity constraint strategies, testing it out for 10 or 20 million. And then you have kind of a an, an IR team that then raises for it, hires underwriters for it, and then rinses and repeats. And so then that way, the individual funds can be shut down as soon as their strategy fades or their strategy is no longer relevant. And that kind of institutionalization of innovation, I think would, like, if you're going to think about like what Fortress is going to look like in 10 years, it's definitely going to look something like that. I just love the idea that you're focused on in every part of the business, not being mediocre. One woman I interviewed, a wonderful woman named Lake Dye, who mentioned a book called The Beginner's Mind. And it starts with a very simple quote, but I thought was powerful. And it goes, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few. And it just reminds me so much of you because I've gotten a lot of inspiration just from this conversation because it really is this goal and practice of always keeping this beginner's mind. And I feel that with you where you're looking at asset management or you're looking at litigation and finance and looking at ways to not only disrupt, but start from a very fresh mindset. So I just love that so much. Thank you for this conversation and joining me. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope that you will like it. (laughs) 